0: Hello, welcome to Media Roots Radio. This is your host for today, Robbie Martin. Today I'm going to be interviewing writer and journalist for Antiwar.org, Dave DeCamp. Dave is one of my favorite anti-war writers and journalists of the moment. He's extremely prolific, to a ridiculous degree. And if you like Media Roots Radio and you like how we cover war, um, you'll really like how Dave covers war. So without delaying any further, I'll just get right into my discussion with Dave. You've literally written over 1,000 pieces for antiwar.org since you started, right? And that's like a conservative estimate
1: yeah yeah it was like i forget maybe a month or two ago i realized i started writing full-time last september in the news section so the stories i write are you know on the shorter end yeah it's been over a thousand since i started full-time probably close to 1500 uh maybe more since i started writing for them a few years ago like on
0: the side but yeah since i started uh in the news section i've been writing a lot I don't mean to sound patronizing at all and I hope it's not come off that way but it's amazing to see how far you've come since we first started talking to each other and I I think I remember you showing me one of your first articles you were we were you were asking for some notes on it or suggestions and and I was just like super excited that you know you shared a similar point of view to me you were thinking of things in a similar way that I was and it was nice to like come across you and that you were like very interested in actually putting content out but i mean i think what you're doing is just more of the old school journalist you know really focusing on a particular beat and doing it really well
1: yeah thanks i I was given a good opportunity with antiwar.com um you know i just kind of randomly started writing for them uh back in 2019 i just started sending them articles and uh eric garris who runs the site You know, he liked them. And then uh, he got me in touch with Scott Horton, who, um, you know, he's one of our editors on top of his radio show. And he actually really helped me. He kind of taught me how to write. He kind of helped me with a lot of little things. And then they were like, okay, uh, what do you got? (laughs) You know, it was just a place where I could. They gave me the space to write as much as I want and whatever I wanted. They never editorialized me. Um, So, and then I really. I'm happy to be doing what I'm doing in the news section because like, you know, I use a lot of mainstream sources and I kind of try to decipher what's happening and, and cover what I think people, uh, anti-war people on the left and the right and libertarians, anti-imperialists, whatever you, you know, call yourself. Um, you know, we curate a page every day and in the news section on top, it's kind of like the news around the empire that, you know, people should be paying attention to. And, uh, so yeah, I just try to crank it out. And when it comes to like the, personality you know i kind of i'm more suited to writing and not doing too many interviews and youtube videos it's just not really my thing i kind of get a little anxiety about stuff like that so i'm really happy to be doing what i'm doing yeah and i'm lucky and you know i have to thank you and your sister you guys uh i kind of got me started on this path from you know listening to you so yeah it's pretty cool and and everything happened pretty quick but um yeah it's my job now full-time so yeah things
0: have uh worked out pretty well I mean that's that's awesome uh that we played some role in your inspiration and it's cool to see you I mean I don't even I mean I guess it doesn't really matter but like what how would you even identify politically would you would you call yourself a libertarian what what would you tell people
1: yeah I I call myself a libertarian it's what I'm closest to but I'm kind of a single issue guy um and uh you know before covid and the lockdowns and all this stuff i would say it was you know i i I would say to any libertarians like you have to focus on the empire it's kind of the main thing but i understand how a lot of libertarians got swept up into the lockdown stuff um but yeah Yeah. i consider myself a libertarian but i I also have probably i identify with the left a lot it's kind of the way i grew up i mean i grew up i was in high school during the bush years so i kind of have this natural instinct to not like the right, you know, and Tucker Carlson and people like that. But yeah, no, I'm a libertarian and I don't really consider myself right wing, but yeah, I'm a, I'm a libertarian
0: for sure. Yeah. I mean, I don't, I definitely don't see you as a right winger, but I like, I I think, I mean, you and Scott Horton are honestly like my two favorite self-identified libertarians. And I think it's cool that you sort of, you know, had Scott, sort of helping you through this writing process and then you also took inspiration from me and Abby it's kind of like almost like the idea in my mind at least it's sort of like the idealized without sounding too narcissistic version of the left and the right working together in a kind of a vague way you know what I mean (laughs) Yeah, yeah rather than this sort of false paradigm that's been forced on us during the Trump era where it's like Why shouldn't the left and the MAGA movement work together to stop wars? It's like, what are you talking about? The MAGA movement? Like, what about like (laughs) real dedicated conservative lean libertarian people who've been doing this shit for decades? Like, why not work with them? Like, we're just going to skip over them. I mean, that's how I knew all that stuff was mostly fraudulent, the way that was being sort of forced on us, you know? Yeah. But I mean, what's cool about you, Dave, is you, I mean, like, I feel like other people in your position, like like wouldn't you know go for the jugular as often as you do or you actually will confront people occasionally um you know like greenwald you didn't you know you're not like throwing venom at him but you're you're challenging people like greenwald and other people you know in the larger scene so i value that as well because i think we get caught up into this more sort of cult mentality where it's like you know as long as someone is you know mostly aligned with my politics i'm just never going to challenge you know, anything they say, which I, I just personally think is like an unhealthy point of view. Yeah. But I just wanted to start with something and and you could stop me at any time because I'm actually going through, I'm going through some of the things you've said in the past uh, three months, um, which I found interesting because of course, you know, from my perspective, I, I hammer away at some of this stuff all the time and honestly really frustrated at how I feel like I'm just screaming into the wind. Um, but I noticed you said some interesting things that I just wanted to, I wanted to, I wanted to get your explanation on, on what you meant or maybe elaborate <laughs> on some of them. Sure. So, so you said that libertarians shouldn't ally with the populist wing of the Republican Party. They might seem like allies because they wanted lockdowns lifted a little earlier, but they're all morons when it comes to China. And that is the country the empire has in its crosshairs now. So like elaborate on, on what you mean by that.
1: Well, so there is kind of—I'm on the peripheral of this. I'm not involved in any political party, but there's a split in libertarians right now, whether to go to the LP, like Dave Smith and Scott Horton are going that way. Um, and then there are kind of, you know, I guess paleo-libertarians, you would call them, that are like, oh, DeSantis, you know, he's our guy, and Matt Gates and they like all these people.
0: No but, shit. So that's— Yeah. How prominent would you say that split—are is? these like— Johnny come lately, people saying they're libertarian, or do you actually see evidence that there's been people who have been in libertarianism for a long time who got gravitated towards Matt Gates and people like that?
1: um there are yeah, there are people that I would that I don't think are like phonies you know that are going that way um, interesting, but it is kind of more in the local politics. It's less like Matt Gates and more DeSantis, which you know I kind of get um because of this past year with the lockdowns and stuff. But they're like DeSantis. I mean, they're all it's not like really any of them are good on China of the this populist right in uh, Gates or any of them. They've all said I, I think Gates has said, uh, you know, the whole time we were wasting our time in the Middle East, uh, that China has been growing stronger. They are a real threat. Like they all say stuff like that. Um, and I think, you know maybe in the short term for some of the libertarians that are were allying with that wing we're going to the republican party to think that they can purge it of the neocons which is kind of a talking point i've been hearing but you know everything's kind of rebranded and you know um you could purge as many liz cheneys as you want from the republican party they're still going to be the party that is kind of driving this shift to china um in my opinion and the democrats are doing it too but it's different, you know. Russia. It was more the Democrats doing it, but the Republicans were also behind it. And this way, it's kind of flipped. It's more. It's Republicans are the ones with the really harsh rhetoric, um, and it's all of them—the bad ones and the ones that are marginally better than others. They're all pretty bad on China. So that's that's what I that's what I meant.
0: Yeah. Well, I mean, obviously, I I completely agree with what you're saying, but it is really interesting how. At least with the paradigm of Russiagate and all the Russia hysteria during the Trump era, the Republicans largely resisted the temptation to play along with it. Like, mm-hmm. except for the actual actions that were taken, you know, behind the scenes, it didn't get very much coverage, like Trump approving the $300 million of weapons to Ukraine and things like that. But with this situation we have now, I don't see the Democrats holding down the fort and trying to resist pressure to go after the Chinese. I actually see them as much weaker in that regard. So I'm I'm more concerned uh, that the China thing could flare up more so than the Russiagate thing did. Mm. I don't even know if I would have felt that way a year ago, if you'd asked me, but now I actually am more concerned. I don't know. How do you feel about that? Like Compared to you know obviously, you weren't a believer in Russiagate. you, as well as I saw almost all that stuff as hyperbolic, you know xenophobic um kind of geopolitical propaganda um how do you see Russiagate now in retrospect and comparing it to where you see this going? It's china I guess let's call it China gate <laughs> yeah, yeah,
1: <laughs> I mean it is very different, like the Russia gate thing um feel like it was easier for a lot of people to spot as kind of a phony narrative because um, it was pushed so hard and so fast um, kind of right away. Um, and with Russia, I mean, even now, there's kind of more of a risk of like a conflict happening kind of at any moment with the Ukraine. Yeah. Um, it, seem, it seems like Biden and NATO are both hesitant to let Ukraine join NATO, which is good because – but something could happen there even with the stuff with Belarus has gotten pretty uh, – intense um you know nato's there, right there on the border um and we're always sending warships to the black sea now um so something could like kind of pop off um but with china i see it as more of a long-term thing um and but there's still a risk of a conflict happening now with all this the ships and the u.s ships and planes in the south china sea and going through the taiwan strait and stuff so that risk is there but the more immediate risk maybe even still is with russia but with china that's the way everything's going. I mean, and you have to really be stupid to not kind of see this at this point. Um, Cause that actually <laughs> you played a role in me kind of waking up last year when COVID first started that, Oh, this is obviously going to be used to um, pursue like a anti-China or like a new cold war with China, the, the COVID stuff. And now at this point over a year later, it's even more obvious that that's the way everything's going. I mean, the Pentagon has identified China as the top. Th- they, they were calling it the top pacing threat, which they've changed the pacing challenge. I guess they toned it down a little bit, but that's what the, for the Pentagon's budget request for next year, they're saying, Oh yeah, we need all this because China it's like, okay, so this is happening. Whether or not people think Biden was in the working with the Chinese government or whatever, they think that the U S built up the Chinese government, which they, they, we, you know, did. in and, many ways um
0: just like we did to the um, post-soviet russia it's kind of interesting how it's like the u.s does have a weird hand in building up some of these societies and then at a certain point decides that they're not that they're now the enemy you know it's it's kind of fascinating the way that sort of is a pattern
1: (laughs) yeah yeah and and, i mean so like I, i am surprised how many people are like oh yeah um they were they have business interests in china you know wall street but like that stuff can switch pretty quickly and i think it is kind of changing there definitely still is some corporate interests uh corporations that have an interest in good relations with china but i think they're kind of being drowned out by the arms industry and other corporations that for whatever reason i'm not really sure do seem to be kind of i think it's more about power than money it's more about the u.s empire and i think the chinese corporations they're starting to be able to compete with the american ones I think that's maybe an aspect of it but but when it comes to russia gate why i'm kind of more concerned about this is because of how many people are you know buying it and that with the covid there this is like uh, a propagand like a war propagandist dream there's a pandemic and we can blame it on the people that we want to go to war with you know it's kind of all there and nobody pushes back against it there's nobody in Washington there's nobody in Congress that's like hey maybe we should uh take it easy with what we're doing with China. I mean, I don't think that there's anybody. I could be wrong. I don't think there's anybody in the House or Senate that has pushed back on any of this stuff. No, um, I
0: think you're right. I mean, I was actually going to ask you that at the beginning. I thought, well, this is an obvious there's no there's nobody. The answer is none. If I was going to ask one, you that question. <laughs> yeah.
1: The one person actually uh Thomas Massey. He he was like the one no vote against all the Hong Kong and Xinjiang bills. Oh, fascinating. That Trump signed.
0: Okay. But he's
1: not really He's not out there saying, hey, let's not send ships to the South China Sea. He's not like really fighting against it.
0: Yeah, just kind of more uh, in, his, in his votes. Yeah. Is it because you find, you find this scarier or maybe m- more alarming because you see how quickly it's spreading and infecting people's minds? Is that kind of what you mean?
1: <laughs> yeah. And I mean people just – and I kind of gauge a lot of this stuff on like my Facebook friends because my facebook is like it's still just people i went to high school with you know family and cousins and and not really that political people and uh you know when i I started to see all this stuff about china like everybody's kind of talking shit about china everybody i used to work with at my old job you bring up everybody has something kind of bad to say about china and uh I, I i was hanging out with a friend of mine recently and he started going off about Chinese government and I was like and I kind of pushed back on it and he listened he's not like an asshole but he said he's like you know nobody's ever nobody's ever defend like I wasn't necessarily defending the Chinese government I mean I guess I kind of was but he's like nobody's ever pushed back on that. and he kind of thought that was interesting like he kind of had it like reflected on it a little bit but yeah everybody's ready to just kind of go off about how evil the Chinese government is um so, yeah, I mean, that's that's why I think it's dangerous. And even, uh, I mean, Ron Paul, the Liberty Report, they had an episode about China the other day. And uh, even Ron Paul was like, oh, we're going to hear some some things from our listeners. It's like even the people, regular listeners of Ron Paul are like some yeah. of them are bad on China.
0: Well, not not to, you know, cri- I don't want to make this about criticizing the, the Paul uh, paradigm in the Libertarian Party, which... Has been kind of a, a let's say a powerful wing and sort of almost perceived as like royalty in the libertarian party. Mm. I, I think Ron Paul was really slow to. I, I mean, not that g- criticizing the lockdowns and the civil liberty stuff during COVID wasn't important, but I feel like they largely missed the boat on the China stuff. And that I mean, the good thing is they're pushing back now and they're they're promoting your stuff, which is great. Yeah, but I do feel like. You and I, Dave, were some of the only people that were on this like a year ago. So it's very, been very frustrating for me to watch people catch up to this slowly. It is encouraging to see some new people joining up. It's mostly, I see mostly libertarians doing it. I mean, Scott Horton uh, going on the Tim Pool show was amazing. Yeah. You never see an interchange like that because, as you just said, people are almost shocked that anybody would not defend China, but defend, like push back against the propaganda against China, and that's I think a different thing than actually defending China. And I think I guess just from my side, part of um, what makes yeah the China thing scarier to me is because, uh, similar to what you said, is because how much people's brains are like a sponge soaking up all this propaganda, and then just repeating it, just totally uncritically. It's almost like They've turned China into the way that North Korea was seen like 10 years ago. There really isn't any lib resistance of any kind, uh, uh, you know, to push back against that anti-China propaganda. In fact, in reality, uh, we're dealing with really, if you look at the partisan divide on this, the right is now mostly thinking that it was the Chinese, uh, you know, leaked this from a lab, the Chinese do evil things, China controls all the world bodies who help cover up this leak and the left side of the spectrum generally speaking liberals believe that china is filthy that they have such you know uh, poor health uh, practices food safety practices that the dirtiness of china and the crazy things they eat is why uh, this virus and pandemic happened so either way it's kind of a xenophobic narrative that's been created even like the more you know the less war making <laughs> mentality. And so I think that somebody who's been pushing this or whoever plan was to push this could could already see that. That there wasn't going to be very much, if any, liberal resistance to it. And that's sort of when we come in with that sidelining of the, you know, Xinjiang um the Uyghur situation. That actually seems to be a little bit designed to capture liberal attention and also to maybe flip some leftists to get them confused. The, you know, the anarchists, the the you know some of these anti-imperialist socialists and it has gotten them confused and it's it's yeah. also interesting how the lab leak theory this idea that this it was man made it came from a lab i would say the left and liberals largely ignored that debate and only like within the last few weeks have i seen anti-imperialists on the left actually s- coming out and saying this this seems like a new wmds push this smells funny like i don't mm. trust this But unfortunately, I feel like they're a year late because as Sam Hussein, has been trying to tell people like this, this has been ignored, this issue, not that the left should be asking it was this a lab leak, but the left should have been at least engaging with the topic more people in anti-imperialism should have been because now I think that it's it's given the people from the other side pushing that uh, theory, the upper hand, essentially.
1: Yeah, the lab leak thing was kind of interesting because i kind of had the instinct when it this started to kind of push back on it but i did i kind of just didn't i didn't really comment on it much and it was partially because of sam hussein he's reporting on it I, and he approached he approaches it from a great perspective he's like an arms control guy he's it, and um and we were we published a few of his uh articles about it on antiwar.com, um even his scoop that there was pentagon funding for the lab there which media outlets just started picking up he was on that i think that was december 2020 that he Mm -hmm. published that um and but yeah i mean i don't know the lab leak thing um like i said i haven't really studied it enough i think it's i never discounted it um but and it seems like they are purposely going to try to leave out the U.S. funding and the Pentagon funding of the lab and kind of pin it all in China. I, mean, I don't know. Did you see that John Stewart thing? He oh, my God, call. yeah.
0: Gumby yeah. and I, we just recorded an episode yesterday talking about how that's it. That's like the final, that's all they need. I mean, Fauci was one thing saying it might be a lab leak. That's a huge deal. But then Stewart coming on saying it, that's that, that's it. Now it's totally mainstream or it's yeah. safe.
1: But And I didn't watch the whole thing, but he I watched like a two-minute clip. He didn't. I'm guessing he didn't mention the U.S. funding of it.
0: Oh, no, of course not. Yeah,
1: yeah. So, yeah, but, I mean, that is it. It's like they call in the guy, you know, Jon Stewart, who everybody looks up to is, you know, he makes his occasional TV appearance, and he says, okay, now this is the narrative, kind of. is the way I'm looking at
0: it. Yeah, and Colbert actually agreed with him. It wasn't just oh, that... he did. Yeah, so, yeah. I mean, that's a huge deal. How do we explain why this has seemingly been behind the scenes and there were powerful forces trying to suppress this and call it a conspiracy theory for so long. And now they've flipped that script. Why that happened? I think we can only really speculate. I personally Mm -hmm. think it has to do with Trump tarnishing the reputation of the US government to such a degree that it was almost like using Trump as the vehicle to push the anti-China propaganda, especially the lab leak theory might have not been effective. So it was almost like they needed to clean the slate for Biden to come in. That's, that's how I'm seeing it. But there's also some truth to the idea that what was the real reason why Silicon Valley was like cracking down so hard on this. And I think that a lot of this stuff sort of creates this mindset, Dave, and you've definitely seen this, I'm sure, where it's like, even if, let's say, even if Matt Gates gets up there tomorrow and says, Ralph Barak, Peter Dozik, EcoHealth Alliance, NIH funding, the U.S. government is responsible for what could have happened at this lab. It leaked. Even just saying that could still be in some way contorted to fit this other paradigm that the U.S. deep state is controlled by China somehow. That, yeah, that's true. That yeah. somehow in the course of the last four years, there's been a propaganda track mostly on the populist right to convince Americans that we no longer have autonomy, that we no longer have control over even our own movies and TV shows anymore, and that America's lost complete power. And the only real true thing that's happened that China did get over the US was just economic power. That's really all that's really happened. Everything else is mostly imaginary and and you know sort of pushed out there on people. What do you tell people or how do you engage with people who've who are sort of conspiracy minded who think that they know deep politics who've gotten themselves sucked down into this weird cesspool of believing that China now runs the world that the American empire is no longer powerful it's China really pulling all the strings from behind the scenes
1: Yeah no it's it's a kind of a challenge because um that is kind of a in
0: con- some
1: conspiracy people that is the narrative that they've kind of landed on. Um, I mean, I just don't get how you can, unless they say, oh, it's all a show, you know, sending all these uh, like militarizing Asia, the Indo-Pacific, they call it now from the Indian Sea to the from the Indian Ocean to the Pacific Ocean um, and how we are kind of trying to rally allies against China. NATO is has just declared China like a global security challenge. Um, and besides that, all the sanctions and uh, there's investment blacklist for Chinese companies um, and this stuff, like, I think you just have to really point to that. And then you, you, you could even play into their narrative and say, yeah, it, it was they did collaborate with China this whole time. So and now they're switching and turning on them like they did with the Soviet Union, like they did with Saddam Hussein, like they've always done. <laughs> um, but... Um, Because there's no, to me, there's just no denying it now that this is what's happening. But at the same time, we are still completely dependent on China, our economy. Mm -hmm. Um, So that's why I don't think that the plan is like a major war anytime soon. I think it's down the line. But um, and I think we have to watch for the when they take the big steps for economic decoupling, which they're slowly doing and there's more plans in the works like tom cotton has a big uh plan uh on how to do it so i think that's what we have to watch for um so and then that's another thing because there's this whole populist uh not just right but also left uh perspective on it that's like oh yeah they took all our jobs and uh they have bad labor laws and um china so we should shut down our the factories there and bring them here even though they'll probably just end up going to like Cambodia or something but that's also that's why another reason why I'm concerned because there's that whole like Matt Stoller narrative of
0: it well Matt Stoller uh, just really quickly Matt Stoller was actually I think largely responsible for convincing a lot of leftists that China uh, controls Wall Street that it's like Chinese capital that is actually like pulling the strings in sort of our corporatocracy oligarchy on Wall Street and that to me is a sort of a mind-blowing, uh, way to insert that di- you know, that narrative again, that somehow China controls us, that we have mm-hmm. no autonomy. Yeah.
1: I mean, the wall street, uh, they, they, the New York stock exchange delisted Chinese, like three Chinese companies, um, back in January, cause Trump signed an executive order and they did it. And, you know, you think of the power that wall street does have, if they didn't want to do it, they could have kicked that, the can down the road and, They could have, you know, waited for Biden to get in and try to reverse it. Um, So I think that's kind of a sign uh, that they're kind of ready to play along with this. Um, But yeah, uh, but that that narrative is a big one. And I see it um, in in the left. uh, And that was kind of a a Greenwald thing like that. he, He is kind of repeated that the Biden administration, uh, their biggest influence is Wall Street, so they don't have an interest in um, bad relations with China. Um, But, I mean, I just don't get how you can look at now in June and say, yeah, no, the Biden administration doesn't want a war with China or they don't want bad relations with China when they're preparing for war with China. And, I mean, Biden, you know, he's framing everything in this – he's putting everything in this framework there's infrastructure bill um for like every piece of legislation he wants to pass he says oh we got to do it to com- to keep up with china um mm-hmm. so yeah it's just everything now and uh and you could even see it i mean look what's happening since he came into office um he it he is it looks like he's pulling out of afghanistan and now afghanistan's a little different than like because it's not in the Middle East, it's Central Asia, it borders part of China. But it and that, you know, you would think that the U.S. would want to keep some kind of control there, which they still might try to do. They might try to keep a super militarized embassy there with a few hundred troops and some planes and stuff. But they are pulling out. Um, And like I said, it's a little different because it's close to China. But it's also like Biden's not getting out of Afghanistan because he's a good guy because he cares about He wants to end the U.S. occupation of Afghanistan. And he's not – and if you look at Somalia, he hasn't bombed Somalia, Biden. Trump is bombing the hell out of Somalia. Um, The CIA could be doing it secretly, but like U.S.-Africa Command, they haven't bombed Somalia once since Biden's been in office. Um, And the situation hasn't changed there. Al-Shabaab is still there, who the U.S. could – they're not a threat to us, but (laughs) they've been pretending they are for all this time. So why aren't they still doing that? And why isn't there an escalation in Syria like everybody said there was going to be? And and, uh, it's not because Biden is a good person. It's because he's preparing for war with China. That's what's happening. Um, So, yeah, I mean, I kind of just went off on a little tangent there. But
0: I mean, I'm wondering if you agree with this. It seems like, you know, I hate to call Russiagate like almost like a, a, a canary in a coal mine kind of pilot program. But it does seem like the idea that Russia was actually a genuine threat to us, other than this this liberal idea that somehow they got Trump installed here, which I'm sure a lot of liberals were terrified. If you believe that, it's probably terrifying on some level. You kind of have to be nationalistic, generic. You kind of almost have to be boomer mindset to be really affected by that or just a generic lib. But I Mm -hmm. think with China, there's something different here where even if we don't get into a war with China, This could turn into a long-term Cold War type situation in the same way that during the original Cold War between the United States and Russia, a large amount of it was an internal psychological war on the American people to be incredibly paranoid that Russia was going to just do anything to us, you know, poison our food, be secretly spying on us in our country listening to our phone calls uh shooting at us from space when Sputnik you know was launched in space like it was like this terrifying moment um that they you know try to make Americans feel terrified over and when i say they i mean like the american media and government did so mm. i'm wondering if this is the this is the main danger we are seeing now growing with this new hysteria around china and i'm just wondering how you feel about that idea that perhaps the greatest danger let's say that A real hot war is pretty far off here, realistically, but an internal psychological war to fill Americans' brains with paranoia about an an outsider, another, like outside of our country. I think China provides one of the most effective means to do that, maybe arguably even more effective than the Soviet Union did during the Cold War, because it was... You know, the Soviet Union was very communist. China has this sort of capitalistic tech element to it that can be used to scare us even more. Their technology to spy. What do you think about that? That this could be used as an engine to just psychologically impact Americans for, I don't know, the next several decades just to keep us in this fear state about a foreign country?
1: Well, yeah. I mean, that is definitely... um you know will be an element of it um and like you said the difference between the soviet union and china is the trade relationship that we've had with china for the past you know 30 years um and all the chinese uh stuff that we have and and there is um a presence of chinese companies and in in the u.s um so yeah i mean that's definitely a, a big part of it um and it's 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 also like the perfect way to um, throw for the U.S. government to throw people off the scent of their surveillance and spying and stuff by saying, "Oh, it's you know, look at all this spying China's doing." Um, and you know they really it works too because uh, I, I just the way people look at Huawei, like the the phone and 5G company that's been banned here, um, how they say, "Oh, they're they're like," I've <laughs> heard people say that the their phones are full of you know spy equipment it's like well what is the iphone and, and what's all this filled with and uh you know it's really interesting how they can do like TikTok, the whole TikTok thing it's like they make americans more scared of a government thousands of miles away having access to their data than their own government i know i always thought that was
0: funny that to me is one of the weirdest ones because That gets into a headspace where they've even tried to make Americans paranoid about uh, China somehow owning our like um you know what what is that like DNA genealogy website called here?
1: Oh Um, yeah, that like
0: Um, I I don't know the name, but they I mean basically there's been media stories from like big outlets like Wall Street Journal and Bloomberg and stuff making it appear that China is collecting information about our DNA in order to kill us like technocratically murder us <laughs> by like databasing our DNA. I mean, that's the implication. So yeah, no, it is, it is absurd that people just are really easily swayed to be more afraid of TikTok. Yeah. And the big, <laughs> and the big battle against big tech isn't about privacy anymore at all. It's almost like, I wouldn't honestly even be surprised if the big tech companies were feeding into this fake battle right now happening against them. I call it a fake battle because the Republicans pushing this fight against big tech want to repeal Section Two Hundred and Thirty, which would actually make the internet completely sanitized. Like it would mm-hmm. remove almost everything, like every element of what we consider free speech on the internet now. So, back to some of the things you've been saying on Twitter. I'm gonna I'm gonna put you on the spot and and perhaps embarrass you by reading some more of your tweets. Sure. Um, But back to DeSantis, because he's a really good example of this guy who's been hoisted up as a populist, nationalist patriot versus the globalists. Um, Yeah, yeah. And you said, DeSantis sanctioned Airbnb when it decided not to list properties in the occupied West Bank. That's right. Mr. Freedom Governor penalized (laughs) an American company for choosing to boycott Israel's occupation. That's the foreign influence I'm concerned with. Now, how bizarre is that, that people perceive DeSantis as being this patriot when he's literally penalizing private companies for not for choosing to protest a foreign country. Like, that is absolutely, that just seems completely beyond the purview of a governor in general. Like, why is this motherfucker even saying anything about this shit? Let alone, I mean, why is he doing anything about this shit at all, is, is my question. And then you also, um, you know, I mean, I don't know if you also mentioned this, but DeSantis is out there doing speeches about how China. Needs hmm. to be um, like needs to have regime change. It's like, what are you doing? You're a governor, dude. Like, so <laughs> yeah. I, and
1: I mean, that that is another aspect of this populist right is that they're all dog shit on Israel.
0: <laughs> and is that a coincidence, or do you think there's something to that? I mean, do you think that? I guess my my overall question is: Do you think that the populist right movement has any actual core element of real populism to it, or do you think it's largely like controlled opposition.
1: Um, I think there's there is some populism to it, and you know, with a lot of this stuff, I mean, I get why. If I was, if you're living in Florida and you, you disagree with the lockdowns that you like, you plan on voting for Desantis again because he he lifted them a, a lot earlier than a lot of governors did. Um, but I mean, in the long run, when it comes to political, um. Like it's one thing to vote for a governor, but uh, my tweet about the libertarians allying with them—I mean, the political st- strategy of infiltrating the the Republican Party and working with the populace—I think that's just a in in the in the long term, that's just a failed strategy because maybe this is a controlled opposition aspect of it. Which I mean, I think I, that would be a good way to describe it. I mean, even we you look at tucker and trump and the the whole thing i mean yeah let's get out of syria but iran is bad and israel is great but yeah, the war in syria is bad um it like it was just all this very uh kind of limited hangout stuff um they all get upset when biden bombs syria but they don't care when israel does it every week or a few times a week um and then when it comes to the empire i mean they're they're all they're pro-empire that's why they care so much about china And DeSantis, too, I mean, he's kind of, people think he's going to, I don't know, maybe not in 2024, but that he's going to try to run for president. Um, I believe it. Yeah, for sure. And he would get a lot of people behind him because of what he did in the past few months. Um, So, yeah. Uh, But, I mean, the Israel stuff is just so funny because, like, you know, Florida has anti-BDS laws and stuff like that. And it's just like. To, for him to talk about this, the the CCP, the evil CCP's influence in like our institutions and stuff, and while he works, you know, hand in glove with a foreign power to punish Americans for you know choosing to boycott uh, Israel, Israel's occupation, it's just a joke.
0: Yeah, and who knows how many of these people actually have ties to China too? You know, they they posture and they act like they're these you know, anti CCP warriors, but like Chinese capital does extend its tentacles all over the world domestically in the U S. So, you know, it's like, how legitimate are, are these people's hatred for China? Or is it just, they're being told to do this, you know, egged Mm -hmm. on by somebody else. It's hard to tell, but I, I wanted to move on to, I wanted to ask you one more question about this, but I wanted to move on to some more serious topics, but there also does seem to be an issue with Zionism now in libertarianism, and I'm surprised to see that evolution. And maybe it's just because there's a bigger tent now in libertarianism; it's grown much bigger. Someone like Glenn Beck, for example, can present his network, The Blaze, as libertarian, um, which I don't think you would have ever been able to get away with that, you know, ten years ago. But the tent has widened so much now, where that seems like you know that that kind of feels, I guess, normal to people now. But you you've also pointed out um, you know, that there's been not just a Zionism problem, but like kind of a neocon problem with some of these supposedly libertarian people. For example, you called Michael Malice anarcho-Zionism. <laughs> you said about Dave Rubin, why does this moron have any credibility in libertarian circles? You also said about Sagar Anjeti making a comment about how he wants um, America to be a, the unilateral power in the world. You, you called it the populist guide to world domination. So you're not falling for any of this stuff. And also, let's let's talk. I want you to maybe briefly just comment on Tim Pool before we move on to the actual foreign policy stuff that's happening right now. Scott Horton calmly obliterates all his talking points. He presents himself as, a, I guess, a, a liberal, you know, a libertarian. I don't really know exactly what his, you know, political persuasion is, but he seems to have a huge amount of influence online. I mean, he's one of the biggest political youtube channels and i'm just wondering what are you heartened to see some people starting to push back against him that aren't just from the left like from within libertarianism or are you still like frustrated by how much influence some of these people have to push zionism and anti-china rhetoric that kind of bleeds into libertarian circles
1: well yeah i mean i think I don't know how much. Um, I mean, I'm I'm not the authority on American libertarians. I'm I, like I said, I'm on the peripheral of it all. But sure. um, I do see, you know, with Tim Pool. I, I don't. I never really paid any attention to him, but I do understand that he has a big following, and I see him say stupid stuff on Twitter. And I've seen some clips of him, and and it. I mean, watching that because I watched that whole thing with Scott, and he's totally sold on the or he's selling the the narrative that China. It, that it's almost inevitable that we're going to go to war with China and Scott night politely just like pushing back on him uh was really it was great to see but I don't know if it had any if it's going to have much of an impact on on just judging by the stuff I've see, seen Tim Poole and the people around him say and it's, it was also like the comments on that video oh, of everybody gosh. calling Scott like you know a commie
0: yeah, the most hilarious so thing ever funny. yeah
1: and uh so that kind of i mean it was great it was all like scott did a great job and it was awesome but it was also kind of like oh man fuck just looking at how bad it's gotten and then designism i mean kind of my litmus test is israel when it comes to libertarians that's kind of why I, and it's big be, it's because of the small libertarian circle that i have kind of ended up in with scott and you know the libertarian institute that he runs pretty much all those guys that have podcasts on there are good are because scott runs it so they kind of they have the right idea about foreign policy and i think a good kind of movement can be built out of that out of scott's orbit but there is a like dave rubin i i don't even know like if he was ever I think he used to consider himself a but I've just seen libertarian share stuff and 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 he's just a total just typical right-wing like Ben Shapiro moron when it comes to Israel and and the, the Gaza stuff. I mean, when you see people justify that, it just makes me
0: sick. Let's move on to Israel a little bit because I mean, we just went through a horrific a, another horrific assault on Gaza 6 years after israel basically nearly destroyed gaza i mean turned so much of it into like a wasteland of rubble this is sort of coming off of the heels as well of mysterious things happening in iranian uh, power infrastructure and their nuclear program israel's new Mossad chief you wrote about this actually threatened more assassinations and attacks inside iran and they were actually basically confirming with a wink and a nod that they were responsible for these recent events. So, tell us a little bit about the sort of espionage type things, you know, accidents, industrial accidents, and things that have been happening in Iran, and also where things are now after the ceasefire. Yeah.
1: Um, so, the Iran stuff, um, so the outgoing Mossad chief, he just. Left, uh, he did an interview last week with Israeli TV, and and did you know the wink and the nod thing about two um, a few recent incidents in in Iran that Israel was responsible for. One was the assassination of Mohsen Fakhrizadeh. He was a Iranian scientist that was killed in November. Um, you know, just like uh, on the street, just a brazen assassination. And that was during the last kind of couple months of the Trump administration. Israel's trying to provoke a war, it seemed like, with Iran. Um, and that um, but so he he didn't say that he did it, but he it, it was interesting. It was an interview with um, I think it was Israel's Channel 12 or one of their TV stations. And then the interviewer did a voiceover like, oh, Mr. Cohen can't admit that he had anything to do with Fakhrizadeh's assassination but he did personally sign off on it and then back to the interview and so israel has military censors so they're pretty much that that had to get kind of passed through those censors and
0: so so they uh, wanted what you're saying is they wanted iran and the world to know
1: yeah at at the same time like we already knew it it was yeah it's
0: already obvious on a gut level to people like you and me i mean yeah
1: but even the main i mean it was just so it's so because it um all these Israeli sources, they said that they did it to oh, yeah, the New York yeah, Times yeah. and stuff. But and then there was another there's a few incidents at the Natanz nuclear facility um, where Iran, you know, they have a lot of centrifuges and stuff. Um, so it was there was like a sabotage there last summer and then one this past April where there was an explosion and it did some damage to the centrifuges. Um, it's not really clear exactly how much Israel kind of overplays the damage Iran kind of tries to downplay it. But and he kind of did the same thing uh, in this interview, you know, the wink and the nod like Mm -hmm. uh, and then it's the same thing was the voiceover. The interviewer said uh, that the marble, that the foundation, uh, the marble foundation of this nuclear facility that they built has like explosives in it. And Israel made like got somebody in Iran to sell them marble with explosives in it or however they did it again. Who knows exactly how true that is? Because that's another thing. There's a lot of misinformation with these leaks to the media from Israel, because while they admit to the things that they do, they also kind of try to act like they have more power. And I think that happens. You'll see a fire at a factory in Iran and Israeli media will report it. It could could just be a little fire, like a normal industrial accident, but it's kind of... um, uh, what's the word? They they just make a big deal about it to say, oh, maybe we did this too, if you know what I mean.
0: It's almost um, like a form of psychological information warfare. Yeah, no, I've seen I've seen what you're talking about. Even regular Israeli citizens will celebrate now watching news stories about like industrial accidents in Iran, implying that they just think in their mind that the Mossad did it, and they're like cheering it on. So there's there is definitely an element of that going on where it's like they want their own population to think that they're waging this covert war on Iran and maybe even taking credit for things they had nothing to do with. Yeah. Yeah.
1: And th- there's also been all these uh attacks on Iranian ships in the Middle East that were headed to Syria most of them and that was admitted, you know, through leaks to the media. Again, it's not clear how many w- were Israel some could have been accidents, but it's just it's interesting because uh they're always blaming Iran for stuff like this. It, with when it comes to Israel, everything they blame or they say, accuse Iran of. They do. They have a secret nuclear weapons program, um, and they don't. They refuse to sign the Non Proliferation Treaty, um, and they're they're always doing these covert attacks. They're always bombing Syria, and then yeah, the new Mossad chief who's uh, who just came in he, at his. Uh, You know, induction ceremony, he said that Iran will continue feeling the long arm of Mossad or some veiled threat like that. So this stuff is going to continue and yeah, and when it comes to the Iran deal, the Biden administration has been in talks to revive it but it seems like they're not very serious about it because they're refusing to lift all of Trump's sanctions. So they could just be kicking the can down the road until Iran just says, okay, that's enough like you're not giving us you're not Returning to the deal because the U.S. violated the deal, and it's on them to revive it. The fact that Iran is negotiating is a big concession, so it's kind of more of the same from Trump, from the Trump administration.
0: That's part of what's so disturbing about Biden coming into office is a surprising amount of continuity, even for me, um, because I even started to buy into this idea that Biden was really soft on China going into this. I I was surprised. Uh, at the continuity between his administration and Trump's on China, mm. even going as far as basically re-releasing that leaked State Department ca- uh, report that Pompeo's uh, you know State Department put out, re-releasing basically the same report under Anthony Blinken and acting like it's something new about the lab leak stuff,
1: uh, yeah. implying
0: that they w- you know there was a lab leak. So that's I mean obviously alarming. But you you said a uh, few days ago. And this is from a, I think it's from the South China Morning Post, I believe it's called, news outlet. Mm -hmm. This story was basically saying that Joe Biden's European diplomatic blitz will have China woven throughout every meeting. That's the headline. And your commentary on that was, you you pulled out a quote from the article that Biden's China policy is seen by many to be even more hardline than Trump but delivered with a smile and a rhetorical commitment to multilateralism to which you EU leaders find it difficult to say no. And your comment is, this is what scares me that Biden and Blinken will have much more success getting other countries to take their side against China than Trump and Pompeo did. So go into that a, a little bit.
1: Yeah. Well, the whole U S strategy against China is kind of, rallying allies to go along with it and pompeo was trying this in the last few months he like toured asia i mean just the optics of it he he meets with the leader of uh, indonesia and then he has a press conference and he says the chinese communist party is a threat to us all we must like that's not the way you're going to get these countries to go along um that have to that share a region some of them share a border with china but then you you have biden and blinken and they uh just much more toned down and they're, you know, more experience with this stuff, um, even though it's really the same. I mean, Blinken is just a polite Pompeo. But you can see this um, in the even the sanctions. Um, Trump sanctioned China a lot. Biden came in and they sanctioned China over allegations in Xinjiang. And the U.S., the U.K., the EU and Canada all did it together in like the same day. Mm-hmm. Um so, yeah, and a big part of it, too, is the quad. That The quad is uh, it's like kind of this informal group. It's the U.S., Japan, India, and Australia. And the Trump administration revived it because it, it was like – it started, I think, in, in 2007. And then uh, India and Australia, they didn't really want to send the wrong signal to China, so that it was dissolved. Trump revived it. They met a few times, started doing a few military exercises together, and now Biden's trying to – he had the first – Quad summit, the first meeting of like the Quad leaders, just the fact that that is the strategy and they're just going to be much better at it. Um, And, you know, you can kind of already see some of the success that they're having. I mean, so the European diplomatic blitz that Biden was just on um, today, he met with today's June, Wednesday, the 16th. He just met met with Putin, but uh, at the G7, at NATO, at the EU, they all you know, it was all about a lot about China and they all released statements on China kind of declaring it a th- like a global threat. And the EU signed a trade deal with China pretty recently, but that's where they agreed on a trade deal, but they haven't um, finalized it since all this sanctions and stuff started. So that's kind of a big sign, I think, because it was like an investment deal. And the fact that the EU is kind of letting it just be sabotaged by Biden it is pretty telling. I think that there is like a real shift happening, not just in the U.S. but in the in Europe and stuff and our allies.
0: Yeah, because that's a really important component uh, to why the Biden administration, in some ways, could be more dangerous than Trump. Because Trump basically um, wasted so much goodwill that, like you know, you know, international community classically you know, treats America like it's the boss and it's, you know, it's, it's the cool kid on the block. It's the kid with the biggest toys or whatever Leon Panetta used to say about American weapons. So that's, I mean, that's something that's really important to this is Trump uh, lowered the credibility of the U S to such a degree that I do think other countries were genuinely had cold feet about joining together with Trump on any foreign policy thing. It seemed like the only time that they really got in with him was on Syria the couple times that it flared up. So I think that's a really big deal moving forward that the international consensus against China can accelerate much faster under Biden than it would have been able to under Trump. I mean, that's pretty clear. And you also, I think you wrote a piece about this on anti-war, about how the Senate uh, just passed a $250 billion package to counter China. And apparently this bill was about researching technology to counter China. And Senator Cantwell, as you said in your article, compares this bill to the funding needed for the Manhattan Project. It's pretty uh, volatile rhetoric there. Uh, tell us a little bit more about this package and exactly what it's for and when was this passed?
1: Yeah, um, this was last week. It's a huge bill. So there's $250 billion, uh, about for funding research into technologies. And about 50 billion of it would subsidize the US uh, semiconductor manufacturing t- chips to kind of get domestic chip manufacturing going, I guess. And then the, the rest would go to, uh, I forget the name of it, but it's a federal agency that does science research and stuff, but besides all that money, which is a lot of money being spent because of China, And it's kind of interesting because a lot of people have pointed this out. It's like they're kind of adopting China's. I mean, not that the U.S. doesn't do this already in in some industries, especially the arms industry, like subsidizing kind of how the state subsidizes certain industries. They're kind of copying China's economic model a little by doing this. But the bill is also packed full of uh, new sanctions and. Um, it would prohibit U.S. officials from attending the Olympics in Beijing, like just stupid things like that in 2022, which I'm sure there's going to be some big push for a boycott. But so and so right. So it passed through the Senate. Um, apparently, the, the House was working on like its own big China bill. Um, so they're working that out. If they pass their own version, then the two, you know, will have to negotiate which one goes to Biden's desk. But when the Senate passes, Biden released a statement and he said, yeah, I'll sign it as soon as as I can. Because he said this a few times, but he said it in the statement on the bill that we're in a competition with China to win the 21st century. Um, So he said, you know, anything to help the competition. And it's really telling because, I mean, Schumer led this bill and he said that um, if we don't do anything now to counter China, our day as the dominant superpower may be ending. You know, they just kind of outright say what they view China as, which is a threat to U.S. hegemony. And, uh, you know, this is kind of big if there's more. This is kind of steps towards economic decoupling, Um, trying to get domestic chip manufacturing, because that's one supply chain that if there was a war and we couldn't get these semiconductors that are like really vital to modern electronics and cars and stuff that would you know really be a big hit to the US so yeah more more stuff like this is probably going to
0: come so one of your predictions moving forward is that there'll be steps taken to decouple america economically from china as the other sort of anti-china hysteria ramps up simultaneously
1: Yeah, I think that's, yeah, that's happening.
0: So just on a sort of slightly related note, um, a Russian official, let me see if I can see his name, uh, Russian ambassador to China, Andrei Denisov, um, said that he doesn't see war breaking out between China, Russia, and the US, but that if it did, it would exterminate all of mankind. Actually, a pretty reasonable statement to make. I mean- People have classically said that World War Three would be like the last world war um, of humankind. I mean, we have the amount of nuclear weapons we have, uh, you know, is can destroy the earth. I don't know how many times over, but it's more than one. I think you also talked about how during COVID, um, there was a particular industry that really did very well during the pandemic. Can you tell us a little bit about what industry that was?
1: Oh, during the pen the arms industry and the
0: <laughs> nuclear weapons. Yes. How 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 is it that nuclear weapons did so well during the pandemic? Explain that.
1: Well, yeah, like global nuclear spending, um, it, it rose uh a few billion during that that year. Um I mean, you know, that's just what is, you know, kind of prioritized by the The governments uh, of the nuclear armed states. And it's mostly the U.S. The U.S. accounts for most of the spending. It's funny because when we talk about nuclear weapons, um, that's a big talking point about China, about how they're advancing their nuclear arms. But if you look at China, they have the highest estimates put their arsenal at 350. The U.S. has about 5,800 nukes, and Russia has about just over 6,000. So we're pointing at this, you know, I don't think any. Nuclear weapons should exist, but we're pointing at this relatively small arsenal as a reason for us to modernize our nuclear arsenal. Which is, I mean, it's just a joke to me, but it, but it is it it it's an example of what China and Russia, of course, are are being used for, which is um, to subsidize and fund these industries um, for not just nuclear weapons, but then there a lot of it is about advanced technology, AI, and uh, hypersonic missiles and robotics stuff like that but yeah so i mean that those industries unless there's a major change even when the world's economy is hurting so much they'll always uh, find a way to spend on that
0: and uh you mentioned hypersonic weapons i think that that topic has come up again for a few people who track this stuff uh with all this ufo news being pushed via mainstream media, because, you know, one of the underlying components of that is that whatever these craft are, they're trying to tell us move faster than anything that we have, technologically speaking. So that Mm -hmm. automatically means that whatever this is, according to the US military, that it's more powerful and can outmaneuver the US military. Therefore, the US military would need weapons that were faster or means of retaliating that's faster or as fast. So that concept of, it's like, we think the nuclear arms race has been over since MAD, you know, mutually assured destruction, which is actually a a term coined by the head of the Hudson Institute. Uh, (laughs) We thought, you know, we kind of imagine in our minds that the arms race is sort of a thing of the past when it comes to nukes, but it's not true at all because even post Star Wars, uh, there's been a lot of talk about developing directed energy weapons and hypersonic weapons, which are basically nukes equipped with... Rockets that can go five to 10 times faster than the speed of sound. So that's just another way of inching up the, you know, the strike capability and being like, actually we, we, there is no such thing as mad because we can strike all your facilities first because we have hypersonic weapons. It's sort of, that's where it's leading. So it's like the, during the cold war, I mean, the nuclear buildup was mostly, you know, the excuse given was it was mostly to counter the Soviet union and Now here we are again, you know, after the Soviet union's collapsed uh in still in some kind of cold war with modern Russia. it does seem like with Biden in office, that is really flaring up again, and some aspects had flared up during the Trump administration, but it it wasn't rhetorically flaring up. There were things Trump was pushing and doing that was exacerbating and making the situation more intense, but not not rhetorically. And I think that's important because you need both. You need both the rhetoric, the propaganda front. It does seem like Biden is completing that circle where his whole administration is postured against Putin. I mean, he even went, made a point to, that whole George Stephanopoulos interview seemed like a total setup, like pre-interview plan thing where he's like, is Putin a killer? And Biden's like, yeah, he's a killer. It's like, dude, come on. Like, this is obviously yeah. just, it's a very clear forced way to sort of contrast yourself and your administration position with Trump. Um but what what is going on right now, Dave, that to you is the most alarming? Uh we you and I haven't really talked about the Russia situation since Biden got in. So what do you, what have you seen that's happened since Biden has gotten in office with Ukraine with just the rhetoric that the administration is using and also the rhetoric back and forth because now, you know, Biden and Putin are are having this meeting. So give us a little overview of of what's happening and and what's uh how worried should we be about that
1: yeah well so biden you know right off the bat when he came into office um he sanctioned russia for navalny the opposition guy that's in jail um and they expelled some russian diplomats and uh they uh and then they imposed a bunch of more sanctions over kind of all these unsubstantiated claims about russia you know the that they interfered in the 2020 election which is an even like thinner claim than the 2016 stuff oh wow um they yeah there was some uh, intelligence assessment that said putin like ordered a denigration campaign of biden and the only evidence that they cited uh, it was real evidence but what they cited was russian media coverage of what Biden did in Ukraine and, and Hunter Biden getting that job. That's hilarious after the coup. Oh my God. See, This is like how they're just covering something that is real. And (laughs) that happened. And that's basically the evidence. Um, And the solar winds hack. I wrote a a lot about that when it first kind of happened in, when it was first discovered in December and January, they blame that on Russia. There's no evidence that it was Russia. Um, And, uh it but they still sanctioned him for it. I mean, that's a whole nother rabbit hole I could get into, but just real like the quick, the long and short of it is um they blamed it on Russia. The best that the US intelligence could say is that the hack was likely, likely Russian in origin, which doesn't mean that it was if it hap you know, say the hackers were in Russia, it doesn't mean it was the Russian government. Um
0: and the and even if it soul, was i just want to just step in really quick let's just mm-hmm. I, I think people haven't thought about this in a complex enough way because let's just say for argument's sake that it that these are russian state actors that are hacking us who's to say that there aren't american state actors here that are asking uh, russian state actors to do this like, yeah. as so, that I think is an angle that no one's really explored. It's like, this doesn't mean that like Putin is ordering something from the top down. A lot of this stuff is very fragmented. We already know that even John Bolton was like working, doing something in Russia, trying to promote uh, guns in Russia and shit like that. It's like, there, there is a weird thing. There is something with the Russia thing, but it's absolutely not what how the mainstream media has characterized it. So, sorry for interrupting you. You're
1: no, yeah. And then there's also a question like, if they did it, then if is it what then what does that mean? Like, what is a a quote-unquote cyber attack? What does it mean when you access a server and read some emails? Is that are we going to treat that as an attack? Because that's what some a lot of people in Congress are calling it, like a Russian invasion. But the hack, they they just kind of looked around and they didn't. Nothing was really stolen, from what I understand. Um, But and it was kind of revealed during congressional testimony by the SolarWinds CEO that the that the password for the um, server that was hacked was, which was SolarWinds123, was like publicly available on the internet. It was posted on GitHub by like an intern. And um, a, a cybersecurity expert that advised SolarWinds right after it happened spoke with the Reuters and he said, I've been warning them about that password for a while. Anybody, he said, anybody could have done this. It, 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 so it's not like this advanced hack that it's kind of portrayed as. But anyway, back to the Russia stuff. So we sanctioned them for that um the state department also mentioned russian uh since the russian bounty story was pretty much has pretty much been debunked um when we sanctioned russia the state department said uh this is you know over reports of possible russian bounties on u.s troops or something like they, they technically didn't sanction them for it but they mentioned it in the statement and that's just a complete bogus story um and But this was kind of big because it was a lot of sanctions and the u.s expelled a lot of russian diplomats russia responded and kicked out some diplomats uh ukraine there's um kind of a tense border standoff um that was portrayed as a russian buildup near ukraine's border um which is true the russians they sent some more troops to crimea and stuff um but there was like ceasefire violations happening in the eastern donbass region um I'm not sure it's not clear exactly which side but that's another thing just kind of falsely portrayed it's not russia in there that's fighting ukraine it's it's separatists um and but anyway the us stood firmly behind ukraine and sent them weapons and uh luckily it doesn't seem like they're joining nato anytime soon um and but now i mean uh biden and putin um i have to kind of read about what happened but right before we talked i saw that putin gave his press conference after that he met with biden he said it was constructive and thing and it went well so hopefully things kind of settled down here um and because i think a lot of the momentum from the biden administration coming in was kind of them trying to do what they said trump didn't do And at the same like well like you said the rhetoric from trump wasn't there but he was still doing all this stuff Um, one good thing that biden and putin agreed to um they this happened when biden first came into office they agreed to renew new start which is the last nuclear arms control treaty between the two powers that trump was probably going to let lapse and that was one of the most dangerous things about his administration was that they're tearing up arms control and like a new nuclear arms race was kind of on the horizon
0: which is like one of the most crazy things that you could let you know like collapse it's it's just so strange that that wasn't something that was more alarming to you know his supposedly anti-war followers that 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 yeah,
1: it didn't get much yeah the attention it deserved. um so hopefully they kind of work on more arms control um so we'll see uh, i think biden's going to give a press conference today so um you know and there is also this kind of i mean Russia and China have kind of grown closer together as like a natural reaction to the Western pressure that they're both under. Um, and then there's kind of this question in the back of my mind that I think. I don't know how if, if this is re- a realistic possibility, but what if Biden just kind of slowly eases off Russia because uh, they want to focus on China um, now? just the fact that NATO exists and is built up on Russia's border, it's not going to really happen, but the rhetoric and stuff, it might kind of tone down. Um, So, but who knows? I I, I just hope that uh, Ukraine doesn't join NATO. That's, you know, my silver lining is that it it looks like they're not joining NATO at, at least anytime soon.
0: Yeah. I mean, that's, that's a bizarre prospect, because that was originally in the Biden administration, that was sort of talked about as being the next step to all this. In fact, mm-hmm. I mean, the whole way reason that that conflict seemed to have started and the coup took place was because of Ukraine's pivot away from the American, you know, NATO sort of relationship, in a way. Yeah. Um, and I just wanted to read something that Mark Ames said as response to this, this summit that took place today. And I think this is really apt, because Even if you think Obama is a war criminal, which I think that he is, and he was a horrible president in terms of foreign policy, he got a lot of shit towards the end of his term for softening on Russia, Mm -hmm. at least rhetorically speaking. And Mark Ames made this point. He says, whatever Biden's own ideas are on the U.S. relationship with Russia, it's pretty clear the U.S. press corps wants blood and won't forgive Biden if he gives them anything less than that. I mean, he's kind of right in a way because it's like we 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 in our minds we think yeah the media was just anti-Trump and that's why Russia gate happened and they just want to throw anything they could at him but i would argue that any president regard if it was Trump anybody else there would have been a rising pressure to get that president to go against russia like external forces trying to pressure them so i i see that same thing happening now even if even if your hopeful scenario occurs that biden does soften his rhetoric we might actually see almost like a repeat of what happened in the last term of Obama, which would be very surreal, I think, to see that again. Because I think that's actually a more clear, it sort more clearly indicates what's happening and shows how it's not just this, you know, the patriots and the nationalists versus the deep state. There is something more complicated happening here.
1: Well, no, yeah, that's a good point. And I mean, if you watch any interview with a Biden official, and when the interviewer brings up Russia, it's like, what are you going to do to punish Vladimir Putin? How are you going to let him get away with this? But, like, it's insane. Oh, yeah. And they kind of talked them into saying, um, you know, a lot of it is like, are you going to, um, I forget, there's an interview with Blinken where, where somebody asked him, are you going to take, are you going to do cyber attacks against Russia or Jesus something as Christ. retaliation? And he was like, uh, that's being considered or something. And, like, it's like, it, the- it's,
0: it's like they're trying to egg them on, almost like this is like a schoolyard, and someone's trying to, like, your your friends are trying to, like, pressure you to, to go through with a fight on the playground after school <laughs> yeah. or something.
1: Yeah, no, it's really, it's really sick stuff. Um, even at the, the thing, I saw some reporter, some American reporter, like, yelled at Putin about Navalny. It's just like, oh, you're really, you know like would you ever yell at biden about assange or anything it's (laughs) like you're really sticking it to the man by you know yelling at the russian president something that you would never say to your Mm -hmm. own president so but yeah i mean i hopefully we'll see i'm about to find out (laughs) what's coming this uh summit so
0: well i'll let you i'll let you get to that dave um but i just want to leave you with one final question What was your reaction to the uh, headline about John Cena speaking Mandarin and apologizing to China for saying Taiwan (laughs) wasn't a country?
1: I mean, my reaction was, oh, everybody's going (laughs) to make a big deal about this now. Um, Yeah. But yeah, I I mean, you know, it is like silly and it's you know fine if people want to make fun of them for it. But that's something I realized when that whole World Health Organization thing happened. And remember the guy who was like asked about it about taiwan and he, yeah, was like, he turned oh, off
0: his thing yeah
1: yeah yeah what i realized then is that so many americans do not understand that the u.s does not recognize taiwan as a country and that the reason why these international um, organizations like the un and the world health organization why they don't either is because it's a u.s policy it's yeah like yeah. china controls the world it's because the u.s controls
0: the world so And that, but then, but see, but then Republicans and and people can, without knowing any of the context, it could be like, see, this is proof that China controls the world because they've gotten America to go along with not recognizing Taiwan as a country. It's like, it could all be twisted. And that's what worries me moving forward is that unlike Russia, like, yeah, you could, you could scare people about the idea of Trump being a Manchurian candidate and that Russian trolls are all over the internet trying to divide the country, you could maybe get scared about that. But I feel like there's not as much there to feed into that fear as there is with all these things we can point to about China. And I think that that's what's really scary is they're sort of the perfect foil um, yeah. for this. And yeah, I mean, I, I think I learned from you that Taiwan was even recognized the country. I mean, it is kind of interesting once you realize how phony a lot mm. of this dialogue is.
1: Well, even I mean, the reason why that whole situation is what it is, why, you know, Mao didn't li- likely the reason why Mao wasn't able to take Taiwan is because the U.S. Navy uh, intervened and, you know, fought a battle with the Chinese communists in the 1950s, um, the the so like how many people understand that understand how much u.s intervention has shaped th- that part of the world and hong kong and and that, that it was a british colony and that you know like and 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 that's such a big part of their history and their nationalist like kind of identity so if you from my basic understanding of china and what it's like there and the culture um the people are nationalists um and the people there they live really good i've I went there last year, kind of, like it was right before the COVID stuff happened and it's a, people are living great. It's a great place. Um, I'm sure that there's some bad stuff going on, but if, if they have to choose between the, a foreign power, like, uh, or their own government, they're, they're going to rally behind their government. So kind of this idea that you see from like Steve Bannon, that it's a bunch of people like you yeah. to be freed. It's just such nonsense. And, uh, all this stuff it, just one thing and then I got to go uh, some senators recently went to taiwan aboard a uh, like a military plane and typically when us politicians went to taiwan they would go on a passenger plane and fascinating yeah and, and it was tammy duckworth chris coons and somebody else uh, three democrats but hmm. they went there to announce like that we were giving them some vaccines so but china they saw it as a provocation and they said you know you know they denounced it in a statement and on uh, chinese social media i think it's called weibo um i read this in the south china morning post which is a good news source if people want to kind of keep up on china um they're all these national all these people are making fun of the chinese government like what do you like they're not really they can't do anything like the us is rubbing it in their face and kind of calling them calling them out for not taking like a stronger stance against Taiwan. Like, um, so yeah, all that kind of nationalist fervor, I guess you could call it where, you know, the U S is going to gin all that up by doing by doing what we're doing. Um, so that's another aspect of it. That's dangerous.
0: Yeah. Well, I mean, thank you so much, Dave, for coming on media roots radio again and educating our listeners, had a great talk with you today and yeah uh let us know where people can find your work what you're working on now if you have anything coming up uh, tell us where they can check you out check your stuff out
1: uh antiwar.com um i, I i'm pretty much in the news section uh every day and um, that's what i'm really focusing on and uh yeah so you could uh check it out every day sign up for our newsletter uh so you could get emailed to you daily and just follow me on twitter at The Camp
0: Dave,
1: and that's
0: it. Let's just keep reminding people out there that, well, you know, maybe without in a disparaging way, tell people that, um, you know, 99% of the people out there right now in the United States talking about Taiwan and how something should be done to protect them have no fucking idea what they're (laughs) talking about and have gotten all of their information just in the last year from the propaganda. So th- yeah. that being said, we really just need basic education on the on the dynamic and the history of the U.S., China, and Taiwan. Just that alone, I think, would really give people a better standing to engage in this argument. You know, because then it's it's really easy. It seems to get trapped in this framing trap of saying that China controls everything, that they're in mm-hmm. control of the of the globe. So I think. We just need to figure out a way to always get out of that framing trap because that's always—I mean, I think once you even try to engage with that, you've, you're losing. You have to like reframe it. So, thanks again, Dave. Yeah, Robbie, it's always great thanks. talking to you.
1: Thanks for having me on.
0: Man. Yeah, we'll talk later about the summit because I want to—I definitely want to hear your analysis about it. Okay, cool. All right, man. Take care. All right, take care. If you liked what you heard on today's episode of Media Roots Radio, please consider becoming a Patreon subscriber for as little as $5 a month or per creation. This gives you access to an exclusive premium bonus episode per month, and people who donate $10 or above get access to our private Discord channel. Our latest premium episode for subscribers only is an 8-hour long installment of the freemasonic history of the united states this is part seven of that series and part seven covers the occult revival and spiritualism era in the late 19th century of the united states you can subscribe to media roots radio at patreon.com slash media roots radio so thank you again for listening take care of you